You're listening to the Wellington Hustle Interview Project, showcasing Wellington's entrepreneurs, sharing their experiences to inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Thank you for joining me. I'm Tim Morrison. Hey there, it's November 2020 and welcome back to another episode of the Wellington Hustle Interview Project. This month I speak with Melissa Golan. Mel is the sole founder of the world-disrupting fintech startup Rip Global. During her past career in sales, Mel learned to loathe expenses. Keeping track, sorting, submitting and looking for missing receipts turned out to be a pain that made her think there must be a better way. Rip Global is a contactless payments and expensing system boasting 100% compliance while enabling customers to never handle receipts again. Mel has successfully raised several rounds of funding from investors in New Zealand and United States. She has big goals to take RIP Global worldwide. Her US venture capital investors are certainly a great indication of RIP Global's potential and Mel's largest customer to date just happens to be the New Zealand government. Now sit back and enjoy this interview with Mel Golan. Mel Golan, thank you for um, taking part in the Wellington Hustle interview project. So if you could just introduce yourself and where you're working. My name is Mel Gollan. I'm founder and CEO for RIP Global. We're a hyper-automation platform for the processing of receipts, invoices and payments, which sounds very high-tech and very exciting. But basically what we do is we lay down data and payment pipelines um, to connect all of the different moving parts before you come to mm-hmm. RIP, what was your kind of history there? So I was a marketing background yeah. and 10 years of doing expense okay. reports and collecting receipts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you loved every year of it. Oh, <laughs> God, it was painful. <laughs> Two or three hours every month. Just no. <laughs> okay, so for RIP, what was your vision when you first started? My vision was really to take receipts and processing and stupid tasks out of the hands of people. Um, Really, that was what it was about. It was about connecting the payment data with the purchase data in a way that the customer does absolutely nothing, which is what I want to do. Nothing. I kind of uh, struggle just taking a photo of my receipts for my expense. Uh, Well, there's a 50% fail rate. Every expensing solution in the world does something like that. No one wants to do it. Mm. Um, so don't, is what we're saying. Don't do it. If they use an accounting system like Xero, MYB or Oracle or SAP, we can actually pull in automatically the different codes. Look, some people um, don't want to code anything or comment on anything and they don't have to, but we offer the opportunity to pre-code and justify your purchase. So it saves the phone calls between you and the back office. Um, So you can give instructions on whatever you're purchasing in that commentary area. And it dynamically loads into a QR code, which you then scan at the till. So what that actually means, it works a little bit like a loyalty card. But once you've done the scanning, you pay and walk away. Your expense report is pre-populated with all of the receipt data, the code and the justification before you've even left the store. So we're offering 100% compliance and, and our clients never have to touch or scan another receipt again. Were you scanning it? Is that pretty much where you would scan a loyalty card or your phone? Exactly, or exactly the same. 
And uh, I guess the uh, the telephone calls to the back office was a pain point of yours, was it? <laughs> oh, look, nobody likes to get a phone call from the counts <laughs> or the boss. What is this big bottle of whiskey? <laughs> uh. Well, yeah, or missing receipts. So mm. that's the other problem. Yeah. You know, typically people gather them and stash them in all sorts of places and then sit down at the end of the month. And if you're reconciling your business um, statement, you, you, you're thinking, geez, where are these receipts gone? And often the merchant name is different from the name that's on the bank statement. So then you're like, well, okay. You can't remember what happened yesterday, let alone, you know, 20 days ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's quite useful to, uh, for people that are on charging those costs. So if you're an accountant or a contractor and you're doing work on behalf of a business, well, you're building an invoice mm. for your client yeah. on these, all these expenses. That can be automated. So you could send out disbursement invoices on a weekly mm. basis um, versus, you well, know. save a huge amount of time. Like, oh, it's and it's, any of that. Exactly. And the customers like it too because there's 100% transparency. So it's not a random made-up charge. It's actually what you know what you've purchased on behalf of that client. So that's um, it makes customers feel good. And uh, how long have you been working on Red? Uh, overnight success, nine years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so from from the idea phase of you know year two of up to my eyebrows and receipts to okay, I'm done with this. Getting the commercials sorted, how do you take something like this that's so disruptive to market? How do we protect ourselves? What IP can we get here? Um, we're all, we have committed to building a massive financial technology company out of New Zealand. So um, patents and IP was critical for us. Um, so we uh, have a very good relationship with James and Wells, little plug. Um, and uh, James and Wells are a, a boutique size um, IP law firm um, they're very, very good though, um, especially with the technology side of things. Because software patents, you can't get them, but we've got to process patents. So, um, and granted in the US, so that's critical for raising money too. Oh, so that's a patent on the process. That you on take. the process, yep. Okay. Has Rep always supported you personally? Did when did you sort of? Um, you I worked. In your sales yeah. Oh. Well, I had a sales and marketing um, consultancy, so I worked that on the side, and then I picked up a contract. Um, a special project for Plunkett actually when I was based in Gisborne. So I didn't draw any um, a salary or anything from the business for the first four or five years. Mm -hmm. And then a really tiny salary, enough to cover childcare because yeah. um, I've also got two young children. Um, and then when I made the decision to leave Gisborne, drag the kids to Wellington, then I started to pay myself um, enough of a salary to support, to support myself and, and the boys. How have you dealt with any early setbacks? If you're doing anything new, you're going to get setbacks. And, uh, I mean, that's just the reality of it. So don't sweat it um, is, is my first thing. And there's always a workaround, you know. If you approach something from a particular direction and um, you come up against a roadblock, I, my, I think I was a little uh, naive when I first started. And, you know, I took what I thought was obviously a banking tool to a couple of the banks, got the runaround, 
you know, um, I'm still waiting for the head of innovation from one of the banks to call me back urgently in two weeks from four and a half years ago. <laughs> so, you know, this is, these are the types of things that when you're a startup, you've got no time, no money, no resources. You can't be flying around to have 50,000 coffee meetings with people. You need results and you need commitments and you need, you need something signed. Um, and it's those are long deal cycles with those guys. So there was a couple of setbacks there. We were supposed to pilot with one of these banks and then somebody blocked it higher up the food chain and on it went. And then I thought, God, how am I going to do this without a big client? And then I thought, well, we're building something huge here. I'll just, you know, do it one step at a time, which is what I've done. So ultimately, your customers are who, who matter. So if you build a good enough product and um, present it the right way, you get the customers, all of those other people become irrelevant. And uh, earlier, before we started recording, you mentioned about um, the government being a customer. How, yes, how, yeah, how did yeah. You, um, could you, I guess that's obviously who you know. Um, or, well, it's, here's the thing. You, I think, chase? <laughs> well, we, we're building a, a globally scalable technology company. Right, we want big customers. And the reality is we live in a tiny little country. Uh, we, we have tiny businesses here compared to the US market or the UK or um, the Philippines. The government in New Zealand as a business is the biggest customer. They're also probably the most well-respected customer internationally. So there's that for me. Who's the best customer for us to get here so we can scale quickly globally, which benefits our our country, um, and they were an obvious choice. Now, everybody told me I was crazy, so I ran a dual sales um, strategy, so we targeted SMEs as well as governments and big entities, but the reality is we've built the best product in the world. Nothing can beat us in terms of efficiency and fraud elimination. Um, so ultimately, as a very uh, passionate New Zealander, I want our government to be using the best tools. And there's just broader benefits of procuring New Zealand technology as well. All of our developments done in New Zealand, all of our profits will be, you know, largely benefited in New Zealand. Um, we've got a couple of global um, shareholders, but we're a 75% Māori-owned business. And we've got iwi investment too. So what we're doing is groundbreaking but the broader benefits to New Zealand long-term are going to be enormous. So the government has a responsibility to um, be considering this during their procurement activities. And also the fact that our country is on a par with third world countries in terms of the complexity of our exports. So we've really got to pull our finger out on that. And technology is complex, it's high value, it has high value employees, who all pay tax, who all spend money in our community, um, it's time for the rubber to hit the road. Did you get like seed funding? Because um, you were saying that it's like 75% Māori owns. So, yep. Yeah. So um, when you raise money, investment as a um, New Zealand-based technology company, it's super hard work. Best place to start is the people that love you. Yeah. So those are your friends and family yeah. and people that then understand the pro problem that you're solving. And then as we've grown and got some traction and hit some milestones, we've been able to go out to bigger types of investors. We've just had a follow-on investment out of the United States. So we've managed to pull in $3 million of investment 
most of it during COVID um, out of the US and into a New Zealand technology company. And that's really important for us too, because they're now looking at the level of support that our company gets from Callaghan Innovation. We're part of the Focus 700 group now for New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, what that means in terms of help. And these American investors are thinking, Jeez, these tech companies in New Zealand are doing some pretty exciting things and the government and the agencies are right behind them. This is a good place to send our money. This is a good place to invest because we build technology probably at a third of the price that they do in the US. So not only are we doing something in terms of, yeah, we're building great tech that we're going to export, but we're also facilitating and bringing the attention of American investment into into New Zealand technology. So I've raised $5 million, which is a lot of money. Yeah, that is a lot of money. Three million of that was pre-revenue, which is really tough and at a big valuation. So that's the other thing. The New Zealand tech scene, we're very Kiwi-ish, you know. Um, We kind of apologise a little bit when we talk about money and don't want to overvalue something. But the reality is you want to raise your money at the highest valuation that you can. I mean, you need to justify it because you want to retain a a lot of the equity in the business as a founder to a certain point. Um, But also... If you, if you don't put a global sort of valuation on it, they, they won't take you seriously. That, that's the other thing. And you also should be raising money at the valuation that you need to raise the money at. Work backwards, mm. you know. There's a lot of misinformation and misguiding of young tech, start, tech in particular startups around New Zealand, you know, should really only value yourself at $1 or $2 million. Well, why? Why should you? If you're building a great product, your addressable market is massive, you're globally scalable, raise the money at the valuations similar to what they're doing in the States. Do your homework and own it and have the confidence to demand that valuation level. And so how do you come up with that valuation level? There's a little bit of a science and a little mm. bit of an art. So, I mean, we have, we've built an expensing app. So we can look at all of the other expensing apps around the world what they raised at, what their valuation was, what's their market share, blah, blah, blah. So there's a, there's a guide, if you like. And then you look at, well, what IP have I got? Because if you can get IP, that increases the value of your company. So there's a little bit of that. So it's really, okay, well, here's the pie. How much of it do you think you're going to get? What's your revenue projections? And then do a multiple of that. So that's the basic science behind it. And then there's the art finding the right investors, finding the people that believe in you and will back you. I mean, I'm a sole founder. Obviously, I'm a woman most of the time. And, (laughs) you know, it's only 2.2% of female founders globally get VC investment. Yet they oftentimes return a 75% better result than the boys. What's going on? I don't know the answer to that. Again, I'm trying to uh, role model and and inspire other women uh, to be aggressive and go out there and really own their space. Was there time that you wanted to give up? Honestly, I saw that question on your sheet. I've never wanted to give up. Never. <laughs> I was talking to one of my advisors yesterday. He's an entrepreneur as well, and he's, he recently sold his business. And, and he, his, his thing that used to keep him up in the middle of the night, because you don't sleep well when you're a founder, is um, his nightmare was having to get a real job. Yeah. 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 When you're a founder, you do every job and you're responsible for everybody that works for you. There are mortgages, feeding, you know, it's, there's a huge amount of pressure. But I can't imagine doing anything else. 
I, I think I'm purpose built for this business. My favorite funny little quote, it was like entrepreneurs working 20 hours a day so they don't have to work seven. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's true. Is there a particular trap that you've fallen into? I haven't, but I would say that there's a lot of traps. I'm old, so that helps. Um, but so taking advice, look, everyone's got an opinion. Um, nobody knows your business better than you, so don't ever forget that. And I think that's a confidence thing. Do what you think is right, I think is the thing, and um, back yourself. So you don't you would avoid a lot of those traps around undervaluations and um, people are always you know looking for an advantage for themselves. So don't don't forget that. What inspires and motivates you? <laughs> well, I built this product for myself, for myself, so I didn't want to touch another receipt. So that motivates me. Um, what motives? Geez, a lot of stuff motivates me. I'm super passionate about what we're doing. Super passionate about growing the technology space in New Zealand. Super passionate about role modelling to young women. Super passionate about encouraging Māori engagement in technology as a career choice. The company won, I won the Māori Women's Development um, Innovation Company of the Year and I'm really proud of that. But also the fact that I'm of Māori descent. I come from a family where my mother left school at 13. She didn't own her first pair of shoes until she was 10. And I've got a photo frame in my office with five generations of women. And you look at all the generations and all of the women have got working hands, farming hands. I'm the first generation not to. You know, that's that's super motivating as well. Yeah. I'm here to shift the needle. Yeah. And how are you how are you doing that? I'm particularly interested in young women in technology. Mm. And when I'm I was hiring my developers, you know, you think it was lots of boys, really good. Um, where are the women? Um, and I think women, particularly around product design and our product management, we're naturally people pleasers. We want to make everybody happy. So the design function and the empathy used by women, I think, is um, really valuable for technology companies. So we decided internally that we would actively promote tech. So we're going to run a, like a, a career conference for young women between the ages of 12 and 18. Scots College are going to sponsor the venue. So we're, we're going to hold it out at the school there. Um, and we're bringing... Māori women from around the country who do the different types of roles within technology companies to speak to it to, so you can actually see what that looks like um, and, and demystify, you know, these scary-sounding, brainy type of roles. Yeah. And, and we're starting to socialise that now and that'll be end of, um, end of this year, December, we're running that. Yeah. So that's exciting. Mm. Can you describe a breakthrough that you're particularly proud of? Winning our first government contract was huge. That's just hugely elevated the company. How did that come about? We started that a long time ago, long sales cycle into the government, socialising the idea, validating the company, and then we went through the official procurement process with them. Then we went through a due diligence process with them during COVID, actually, and then that's all been um, approved and inked now, which is really nice, and we've got that. So that, that was a huge breakthrough for us. Securing investment out of the US mm. was a huge breakthrough for us as well. And 
How did you even start that? Like, was that did that come oh, from your well, that was connections of, with the, your the network? Uh, well, the women's network. Um, it was actually. It came about through the US ambassador, Scott Brown, here. Um, we went to the Select USA summit with him last year. And, you know, we're committed to going to the US because it's such a massive market and it's a good place for us to do business there. So he introduced us to some people at EY. Some people at EY introduced us to some local investors. We went to their office once, came away with a check. Mm-hmm. And then they follow on invested because they're thrilled with the progress that we've made, which is really satisfying. Follow-on investors, is that, yes. is, that, is that a little bit easier than... Uh, no. no. Well, typically what happens is founders make huge promises to get the oh, money yeah. and then don't deliver, yeah. right? So to, to get an existing investor to give you more money means that you're doing something right. Biggest lesson, what do you see as your biggest lesson? God, that's hard. I've learned a lot of lessons along the way. <laughs> I've made a huge number of mistakes. Um, biggest lesson, if you're not a technology based founder then you need to find out about it so I didn't want to know I I, I'm not I don't care what the tech stack is all of that kind of stuff I do now because I need to know what's scalable and what isn't so I made a few problems a few mistakes early on in my um, hires so I spent more money than I wanted to so that was a lesson so you've got to get across that everything's going to take five times as long as you think it's going to take so the most critical thing for a founder is don't run out of money. Yeah. So constantly be raising money. That's that's a huge lesson. You had a couple of s- s- scary moments there, have you? Well, you start getting close to the bone. Like, mm. I operate with a lot of confidence, mm. so I don't raise too much money before we need it. So some founders run out and raise five years' worth of runway or whatever, spend it all because they think they've got a lot of money, and then, oh, shit, we're yeah. a bit short. I haven't had problems raising money. And I want big upswings in value for the existing shareholders, so I wait until we've achieved a milestone or done something else which actually increases the value of the business. But that is a lesson. Keep, keep fundraising and look after yourself mentally is the other thing. Mental health issues around founders um, over-consuming of alcohol and drugs, all that kind of stuff, you know, it um, can be a crutch. Um, but just look after yourself. It is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. So physical and mental health, super important because you're it. Mm. You know, and a lot of times investors are investing in the founder, not the company or the technology. So you have got to be in a fit state. I I mean, I'm a bit of an athlete too. Okay. So I get up at five o'clock in the morning and go for a run or whatever. Okay, so you've got plenty of movement going on. To <clears> you, uh, yeah, I go to, to the gym. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that... That gets me, um, gives me some time to think and it's, it's you know, clarity. Physical activity is so important um, for that. But it's a bit of a recharge for me too. And, you know, I listen to a lot of music and that's helpful. But, yeah, trying to sleep is the biggest challenge, I think. I'm at 3 o'clock in the morning. I've got a great idea person. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been known to bake in the middle of the night because it stoked Afghans for breakfast. <laughs> has this vision always been clear? Yeah. And has it changed any? No. No, no um, I think it's got more exciting and probably bigger. But I've always had a true north in terms of what I wanted to achieve. It's always been a global proposition right from the jump. Because what, what, what I'm doing is really hard, mentally, physically, emotionally tough. 
Um, so if you're going to do it, give it 100%, you know, go big. Mm. There's no point having a little go at it. You want big rewards, big rewards for your shareholders and ultimately for the country. Okay, so if you had to start again, mm-hmm. would you do anything different? You know what? I don't think I would. Yeah. I don't think I would. Uh, the, well, the only thing I'd do different is hire the same CTO I've got now. Um, I'd go again with him. He's great. We have a great relationship. Uh, we've got a very much a um, Fano orientated business here. I cook for the team. So I do brunch once a week. So we eat together, which is great. How big is your team? Um, there's 12 of us oh, now. Yeah. Um, we're just in the process of hiring some more. We'll be three times the size by the sort of middle of, of next year, I would mm-hmm. imagine. Of course, we're opening offices internationally too. So we've actually really had some great applicants too. We've done some really exciting interviews this, this week. And I think with COVID, there's a lot of great talent coming home, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And we've got a very athletic development team. Um, and I'm not sure if it's... Me subconsciously, Maybe. with the sports background, hiring other sports-focused people. Is it drawing in your tribe? Yeah, well, I guess that's it. And, you know, there's, we're very clear in the company. We're a company of hunters, you know. We're not farmers here. So there's two things that this company does. We build technology and we sell subscriptions, including the developers. So everyone's on the sales team. And that, that's, that's the focus of the business, right? Yeah. I'm out of questions. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with me. You're welcome. I always like to talk about the business. I'm really passionate about it. It's, it's energising. Hey Mel, thanks again for sharing your story with the Wellington Hustle community. My takeaway from your interview was the importance of not being caught up in the idea of being an overnight success. It's great to hear that you've worked on RIP for nine years, you've stuck to your vision, and only now is it starting to bear fruit. For you listeners, what have you taken away from Mel's interview? Please share in the comments over on the Wellington Hustle interview website. I'll be adding links here for all the resources mentioned in the interview. You'll also find Mel's contact details if you want to reach out and start a conversation. Just head over to the website wellingtonhustle.co and you'll find Mel there. If you're enjoying these interviews, then please spread the word, share with your friends or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps the Wellington Hustle interview project be found by others. If you're interested in being interviewed for the project or you have somebody in mind that would be a great fit, then please, please, please send me an email on tim at timson.co or head to the Timson Co. website website, click on the Wellington Hustle link from the menu and choose join Wellington Hustle from the drop down. Thanks so much again for listening and until next time, keep on hustling.